0: of the Christian church always is accompanied by music. Every Reformation always has music at the heart of it. The hymns that all of us grew up on are a part of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Those hymns, 90% of the music that we know as Christians growing up as evangelicals come from a window of time from about 1550 to about 1750. And it's funny how attached we all get to music You know, the reality is we all kind of fixate on the music. Spiritually, we fixate on the music that we were hearing when we were having our first experiences with God, our first spiritual experiences, right? Um, That's also true on the secular side of things. We all love the music that we first fell in love to, right? So I grew up in the 70s and Barbara Streisand and Mary, uh, Barry, I almost said Mary Manilow, Barry Manilow and Abba and Bread and all, all that stuff that was the music of your first experience. Whether that's your first experience romantically or your first experience with life or your first experience religiously, um, those are the musics that we generally fixate on. And it's really important for us to have enough largesse as a Christian community to know that not everyone had their religious experience when we did. And there are people now having their religious experiences. So think about it. People who are coming and encountering God and meeting Jesus for the first time, they're hearing the music that's happening now. That will be the music that they look back and talk about the good old days, right? God bless the good old days and i have joked for years and said one of these days there's going to be a bunch of little old ladies in the nursing home named nicole and tiffany who are talking about the good old days when the music was up on the screen but the reality that that points to is a reality that all of us should be mature enough to have enough breadth of soul to say that my experience is not your experience but I am not only blessed by that which immediately blesses me, I'm blessed that you're blessed. Uh, C.S. Lewis said in the beginning of his Christian experience, he was so refined and so calculated and so academic and so intellectual that even in the high Anglican church that he was a part of, he was very critical of the music. He said the music of the Anglican church was at best Fifth-rate poem set to sixth-rate music. And yet he said, one day as he was sitting there in an Anglican service listening to that music, criticizing it unbearably, he said, as I was getting ready to leave in my criticism, he said, I looked across the aisle and there was a little old lady with her eyes turned heavenward, her heart completely open, and the music obviously blessing her soul. And he said, in that minute, God corrected my heart and I realized that I with Jesus, as Jesus was to John, I was not worthy to reach down and unlatch her shoes. I was not worthy to reach down and even polish her shoes. Um, Mr. Rogers, anybody seen Fred Rogers? Mr. Rogers um, has a documentary coming out before too long which is gonna be really, really good. But I remember Fred Rogers. uh, Did y'all grow up with Mr. Rogers? Anybody grow up? Captain Kangaroo, Mr. Rogers, Sesame Street, remember that? Anybody know who I'm talking about when I talk about Mr. Green Jeans? Y'all remember that? Okay, so good, we're in the same era. But Fred Rogers was, what a lot of people don't know is he was a Presbyterian minister. And he went to a Presbyterian seminary in Pittsburgh And as he was there as a young man, he said he was very caught by preaching and the skill of preaching. And he said, I began to go around to all the big churches in Pittsburgh, listening to their preachers, critiquing them and learning from them. He said, in seminary, I became a connoisseur of good preaching and good services. And he said, one day, for whatever reason, I went to a small church in Pittsburgh And he said, the preacher was accordingly small as his church was small and his preaching gift was small. And he said, I sat through the service and I was incredibly uh, critical of his preaching skills. And he said, as I graded him on his preaching, uh, I got nothing from the service and I reconciled in my mind why the church was small because he was obviously not a good preacher And he said, At the end of the service, I got up to leave. And as I got up to leave, he said, I was moving down the aisle. And as I came to the center aisle, I had to step across a woman who was sitting on the end of the aisle, and she was weeping. And he said, I looked at her and feeling some responsibility as a young protege minister, I looked at her and I said, Is there anything I could do for you? Are you all right? and this woman weeping at the end of the service looked at me and said, oh no, I'm fine. Pastor's message really blessed me today. And he said, I remember my heart being arrested and I sit down beside her and he said, it occurred to me, and I'll never forget this line, it occurred to me that the space of ground between somebody doing their best for God and someone in great need, that space of ground is holy ground. Listen to that line again. The space of ground between somebody doing their best for God and somebody in great need is holy ground. And I realized, Roger said at that point, that it's not about skill, it's about heart, it's about sincerity, it's about love, It's about a complete dependence upon the spirit of God because it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And Rogers said my life was forever changed. God bless Fred Rogers. Years later, I saw Fred Rogers on as a young boy. I was about 12 years old. I saw Mr. Rogers. Um, He was at the height of his career on PBS talking to kids and having a show for kids, and Johnny Carson had him on. And I remember that as he sat down with Johnny Carson, this was not his normal setting, and as he launched into the sweetness that was Fred Rogers, and as he began to share love the way only Mr. Rogers could share love, uh, the crowd began to laugh at him. Some of you may have seen that episode, but the crowd began to laugh at him uncomfortably, and... Fred Rogers just kept on being sweet and just kept on loving, and the crowd that was used to kind of sarcastic, sardonic, cynical humor laughed even louder the sweeter he got. You could notice as he was getting sweeter and the crowd was laughing louder that Carson was getting uncomfortable, which was interesting for Carson because normally he would play this to the ultimate end. But Carson was uncomfortable at this moment because he knew that he was in the presence of greatness with Rogers and he knew he didn't deserve to be laughed at because of his love, this Christ-like love he had. Finally, Carson got so uncomfortable that he stopped the entire scene and he said, Mr. Rogers or Fred, he called him, I'm sorry that this crowd doesn't understand you. They don't understand love and I'm sorry they're laughing at you. Fred Rogers, in his inimitable way, looked at Carson and said, it's all right. These are good people. But most people are not used to love. They're not used to loving and they're not used to being loved and it is so uncomfortable for them to be in a place of unconditional love that they don't know what to do. They're not trying to be mean. They're laughing because they're uncomfortable. And the entire crowd went silent. And it sat there for a moment and all of a sudden someone began clapping and they gave him a standing O. And Mr. Rogers reminded us again of the love of Christ and its permeating force. And that's the love that all of us believe in. And I was reminded of that as Matt and Wendy are inspired by that love to write songs, The Christian church has been inspired by that love forever and a day, and it is that love that I believe in so deeply that I want to share with you my favorite text in the entirety of the Bible. So I'm gonna act like I'm back in the old Pentecostal church and I'm gonna trust that you brought your Bible even though I know you didn't. But there might be one in the front of the pew in front of you. And I'm gonna say, turn with me in your Bibles or your phone to the book of 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. And I wanna read you my favorite scripture that really embodies everything that Fred Rogers was talking about, the love of Christ and everything we're trying to do here at Grace Point. And if you don't have a Bible and can't, Pull it up on your phone. Jess was good enough to get it up on the board. And I want to read this text with you. This is my favorite scripture in all of the Bible. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Now, let me tell you about 2 Corinthians first of all. 2 Corinthians is the spiritual travel diary of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had founded the church at Corinth some six to ten years before this writing. And because he was founding other churches and was always on the move geographically, he had to leave the church at Corinth in the hands of lay leadership. And in the hands of lay leadership, there were a few people who began to usurp authority and they began to teach things that really were not copacetic with Paul's teaching And Paul found out through the grapevine that the church at Corinth was being swayed away from his leadership. And Paul wanted, I don't know how else to say it, except Paul wanted to make one last-ditch effort to convince the church at Corinth that he was their pastor. And that those teachers who were rising up trying to usurp his place in their life were interlopers And we're not teaching the message that he taught. And so Paul wrote 2 Corinthians as a defense of his ministry. In the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, and we won't look at that. We'll read 2 Corinthians 12, but just let me give you a little uh, backup to the story or backdrop to the story. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul said to the church in an effort to defend the fact that he was their pastor... He said, I, I've thought this through many ways and I want to simply defend my place in your life this way. I would not have you ignorant of the troubles which came to me in Asia, how I was pressed beyond measure and above my strength to bear. I was persecuted, I was tortured, I was abused, I was harmed, all because of my love for the gospel and my love for you. In other words, Paul is taking upon him the manner of Jesus. Jesus, who after the resurrection met with the disciples and in an effort to vindicate, justify his resurrection and his presence in their life. The Bible says that when Jesus met with them after the resurrection, he didn't float, he didn't glow, he didn't perform a miracle. Lee, the Bible says that when he met with them, he simply stretched out his hand and showed them his wounds. He pulled back his robe and he showed them his side. The Bible says that when everyone from Mary Magdalene to his immediate followers those 11 disciples sans Judas when they saw his wounds when they saw the prince in his hand and the wound in his side the Bible said they were convinced There was one disciple I said 11 but there was actually one disciple you remember A fellow by the name of Thomas was not there on that Sunday evening when Jesus, the resurrected Christ, appeared to his disciples. And when the other disciples told Thomas that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, Thomas said, I won't believe it. And interestingly, Thomas didn't say, I won't believe it until I see him float, glow, perform a miracle, walk on water, raise the dead. That's not what he said. Thomas said, I won't believe that it's him unless I see the wounds and unless I see the print in his side. And eight days later, on Monday week, a week later, the Bible said that Jesus appeared to the disciples and Thomas was there with them. And Thomas stood in front of him and said, I've got to see the wounds. And the Bible says that Jesus extended his hands, pulled back his robe, and listen to this, when Jesus pulled back his robe, there was that wound. You remember that, that um, incredible wound that the Bible said when the soldier thrust the spear into Jesus' side, blood and water came out, which was an indication that his heart had literally broken. Uh, there was this congestive heart failure that mingled blood and water, and blood and water as a sacrament of the New Testament covenant came out Jesus pulled back the robe and he looked at Thomas and he said, put your finger right there. The Bible says that when Thomas put his hand into the wound of God, Thomas said something that no one had said before in the Gospels. Thomas said, my Lord, which had been said, but then he said, my Lord and my God. It is amazing that Jesus was never called God on the grounds of a virgin birth, water into wine, dead people raised, blind people given sight, water turned into wine. All of the miracles that he did, sermons on the mount, the wise teachings that he gave, Jesus was never called God until a man saw his wounds. So Jesus' ultimate defense in resurrection and his ultimate projection of his deity was when he showed his wounds, and this was his ultimate vindication, which is ironic in so many ways. Paul follows that script when Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's saying, I know you're listening to others, but I want to assert that I am your pastor, I want to encourage you to follow my words, to yield to my teaching, and this is the way I'm going to do it. I would not have you ignorant of the trouble which came to me in Asia. There was a moment in my life where I was pressed beyond measure above my strength to bear. That wonderful text where Paul said, I was pressed beyond measure above my strength to bear, in so much, he said, that there was a moment in Asia This was the place where he was whipped multiple times, beaten with rods multiple times, stoned and left for dead. He incurred incredible physical and psychological damage. Paul said, I want you, as I'm trying to vindicate my ministry to you, I want you to look at my wounds. I want you to know that... There was a moment in Asia where I got so to the end of my strength that I despaired of life. Now, the knee-jerk translation of that is that Paul was saying, I despaired of life. In other words, I thought I was going to die, and that's not it. Paul was actually saying it was worse than that. To despair of life meant not only that he thought he was going to die, it means that he wanted to die. So for every person in this room, for every person who I ever ministered to, two nights ago I had a young gay kid, um, which I have a lot, reach out to me on Facebook. Thank God for the holy ground of Facebook with all of its flaws. Um, One more 19 year old kid reached out to me and said, I forgive me for being so emotional tonight. A 19 year old kid, my kid's 19, he reached out to me through Facebook and said, I was going to kill myself tonight. And I read something about your church. I'm trying to think about what it would mean to me as a parent if my 19 year old kid was going to kill himself tonight. And somebody said something that would stop them. How I would appreciate that. And to be that person, oh my God, I just want to take off my shoes. But he reached out and he said, I, I was going to kill myself tonight, but I read something about your church, and I didn't believe it was true. But I've spent all night long reading your Facebook post and reading about your church, and I've decided I want to live. Would you talk to me? I spent the better part of yesterday talking to him and his parents. And I was able to say to him... Wanting to take your life is not a sin because there was a great man named Paul who things got so hard for him he wanted to take his life too. Jennifer, when Paul said, I despaired of life, he was not saying, it got so bad I thought I was gonna die. He was saying, it got so bad I wanted to die and I was afraid I wouldn't. 2 Corinthians in other words, is the book, forgive me for the emotion or, or not, but Second Corinthians is the book where Paul literally pulls back his robe, extends his hand and said, I don't have anything else to give you except my wounds. I don't have anything else to say except, this is how much I love. And if this isn't good enough, I don't have anything else to give. That is is Second Corinthians. And so 2 Corinthians 1 is powerful. I, um, I despaired of life so much so that I learned to quit trusting in myself and I learned to start trusting in God who raises the dead. And I also learned, he said, that, that my wounds are a gift to you. He said, so I learned that if I am Troubled, It is for your sake, for, because when I am greatly troubled, I am driven to God for comfort, and in my trouble, I am greatly comforted, and in the comfort that I receive from God, I end up comforting others with the comfort wherewith I have been comforted by God. So Paul said, I have literally ended up being a steward of comfort. I give other people not my own comfort, but I give them the comfort of God, because that's really the powerful stuff to give. I literally thought that all of these wounds that I had incurred were like an IV that were feeding me with bitterness and pain and sorrow. But ultimately, he said, I saw that this was a funnel. My troubles and my pain and my sorrow were a funnel that opened me to a dimension of grace that I would have never known except for my trouble. And as this funnel opened me, I have been filled with the comfort of God, and I have become a steward of the comfort, and I now give others. I am tithing on the comfort that I have been given so if you are a wounded person if you're a person who's faced depression or cancer or divorce or bankruptcy if you've been broken by life here's the good news it can either be an iv that makes you bitter or it can be an iv that opens you to a dimension of grace you would have never known any other way and at that point if you are filled with the comfort of god you become a steward of that comfort and you begin giving it to others everywhere you have opportunity that is second corinthians now let me read you the chapter that is my favorite text in this book that is my favorite book chapter 12 we're going to read it from the king james version because that's the version that god wrote right I'll clean it up a little bit read it from the New King James Version. But follow with me. Chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, verse 1. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. That's a great line. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I don't remember where I heard it, but some wise person said, Conceit is the world's strangest disease because it makes everybody sick except the one who's got it. You didn't get that. I want to say it again. Conceit is the world's strangest disease because it makes everybody sick except the one who's got it. Paul knew that. He said it's not profitable for me to boast. But I want you to know, now remember, he's vying for influence in these people's life. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And now in an act of grammatical humility, He says of himself in the third person, which is kind of annoying, but I get it. He says, I know a man in Christ, he's talking about himself, who 14 years ago, and I want want to tell you what happened to him 14 years before. If we understand the timeline of Paul's life, 14 years before, he was on his second missionary journey, And he had made this little foray through the southern part of what we now call Turkey. And he came to a little town called Lystra, and it did not go well for him. And as he was preaching, they started throwing rocks at him. And finally, they decided to formally stone him, and first century stonings were pretty gruesome. They would put a person down in a hollow down in the valley. People would stand around the rim of that valley and they would throw rocks and the person would dodge the rocks until they couldn't dodge the rocks anymore and the rocks would begin to connect and it was gruesome as the person would crumple and then as they couldn't dodge anymore the rocks would accumulate and finally the person would be pummeled to death. And that happened to Paul and after he was stoned and they decided that he was dead they believed that he corrupted their city so much that even his dead body didn't deserve to be there. So they took his body, Lee, and they drug him outside the city. And when they got to the city gates, they poured his dead body on the outskirts of the city. And Paul said, I died. And in that moment, that transcendent moment on the threshold between life and death, Paul said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. And if anybody has ever had these kind of experiences with God, it really it really doesn't matter to argue whether it was in the body or out of the body. It doesn't matter to argue the details of the experience. The experience is just the experience, and you don't have to explain it. You just have to receive it. And Paul said, they drugged me out. They threw me outside of the city, and, I, and, and this man that I am, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I was caught up into paradise. And in that domain of God, I heard inexpressible words. In other words, I moved into the domain of God, that fourth dimensional domain, that domain beyond the three, three dimensions. And I experienced things that when I crossed the membrane back into this life, they could not be articulated. There was no vocabulary, there was no alphabet, there was no color spectrum, there was no sound spectrum. I experienced things in my spirit that when I came back, I had the full experience, but when I opened my mouth to explain them, I couldn't. I was caught up into paradise and I heard inexpressible words. They were words, but they were not articulable in human form. Verse 5, he said, Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, because all of us have a tendency to desire to boast, my dad told me years ago if you ever meet an arrogant person, be merciful to them because there's a 99% chance that they're really just terribly insecure because only about, my dad told me, only about 1% of arrogant people are really stupid enough to be arrogant. The other 99% of them are posing in deep insecurity. Be gracious and merciful to them, he said, lest it be you. Paul said, of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities, for though I might desire to boast, because we're all tempted that way, I'll not be a fool. For I will speak the truth, but I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Here's what happened. Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. A thorn in the flesh was given to me. A messenger, the Greek there is angelos, of Satan. Satan. That word is translated angel everywhere in the New Testament except here. An ongloss of Satan was sent to buffet me lest I be exalted above measure. Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations given me, there was a thorn in the flesh given to me. It was the gift nobody wanted. It was a gift of pain that nobody would have ever asked for. It was literally a messenger, an angel of Satan sent to buffet me lest I be exalted above measure. And when this thorn in the flesh hit me, when this Pain. this circumstance hit me and riveted itself into my side. He said, my immediate response was concerning this thing. I besought the Lord three times. Now that's a Greek idiom, or rather a Hebrew idiom that has no good translation in Greek or English. But when the English says that he besought the Lord three times, what he's saying is in the Hebrew, I besought the Lord in the trinary fashion of the Hebrews, morning, noon, and night. In every prayer, it was the beginning of the prayer, the body of the prayer, and the ending of the prayer. He was not saying, I sought the Lord three different times. He was saying, I besought the Lord incessantly. There was this thorn in my side and I begged God, get this out of my side because you know with this in my life, I can't do what I'm supposed to do for you because this is too painful and this is too bad. Paul said, lest I should be exalted above measure. What I didn't know was that the number one disqualification of Christian ministry, listen to me, Grace Point, as we think about trying to build a progressive Christian church in this town, the number one disqualification of Christian ministry is a puffed up attitude. An attitude that thinks that I can do it without God, that think that it's really dependent upon me and my skill set. Paul said, lest I should be exalted above measure because of the revelations And the gifts that have been given me. That's a a really interesting point Jeff. He said. Lest I should be exalted above measure. Because of the abundance of the revelations given to me. Paul was saying. There is a threat to my future ministry. And it is my past ministry. There is a threat to my future blessing. It is my past blessing. The greatest threat to my future blessing. Is the abundance that I have been given in the past. That could yield in me an attitude of self-reliance, of coasting, of tenure, of putting it on autopilot. Because of the abundance of the revelations given me, there was a thorn given me. Because of the gifts and the talents and the good... There was the potential that they could so threaten my future usefulness by making me haughty and puffed up and thinking I've got it figured out and self-dependent, independent. To counterbalance that, God in his wisdom gave me a thorn. And when that thorn, that angel of Satan hit me, like Job of old, I thought, I know what's good, I know what's bad, I know when something hits me, if it's good, bad, or if it's God, and as soon as that thorn hit me, he said, I beg God continually, get this out of my side, because it's ruining my life, and the heavens were silent. Paul said, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord, that it might depart from me. I knew, that there's no way with this in my side I could ever do what you've called me to do. I knew that the pain and whatever this thorn was was the disqualifier, and I begged God to get it out. And God said to me, No. My grace is sufficient for you. And God looked at my thorn. God looked at this embarrassing, humiliating, debilitating, painful part of my life that I obviously knew if God would get it out, I could do so much more. And God looked at it and said, No. But it wasn't a simple. No, it was a no with explanation. God said, The reason I'm not going to remove this is because my grace is sufficient for you. And my strength, God said, is actually made complete in weakness. Whoa. God said, My strength is not made complete in human strength and human prowess and clean resumes and talent and skill and money and power and might. But Jeff, God said my strength is actually the diamond of my strength sets most brilliantly against the black velvet backdrop of human weakness. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul said, like Jesus in Gethsemane, saying, Father, let this cup pass from me. And he beats his head against the grain of the universe and the grain of providence until finally his heart breaks and Jesus collapses in Gethsemane and whispers, Nevertheless, not my will but thine. Paul said there came that moment where I was trying to pull this thorn out of my side. You want to know what a thorn is in your life? I'll tell you what a thorn is in your life. A thorn is that thing that no matter what you do, you cannot do one thing about. It is that irresistible, inimitable, impervious thing that no matter how you try to clean it up, how you try to fix it, how you try to get it out, it will never move, and it breaks your heart, and you finally have to look at it and say, I'll be damned, that's mine. That's a thorn. And Paul said, I looked at that thorn, and I said, God, you've got to get it out. And God said, no, I'm going to leave it in. And Paul said, when I realized that that thing was not going to ruin me, but it was actually going to open me to that dimension of grace that I would have never known otherwise, Paul said, therefore, most gladly, I will rather, all of a sudden, the thing that he hated about his life, he said, I will now rather boast in my infirmities. Now, why would I boast in my infirmities? Why would I embrace my thorn? Why would I wrap my arm around this? Look at the next verse. He said, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That is a beautiful Greek phrase. It literally could have been translated that the power of Christ might spread a tent over me. Therefore, I have changed my mind about the formula for success and the definition, Ted, of success. I've changed my mind. He said, based upon God's perspective on this, therefore, I now will take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. What's interesting is he said there was an angel, an angelos, sent from Satan to buffet me. It wasn't just one thing. When people say, well, it was diabetes or bad eyesight or he was gay, it wasn't just one thing for Paul. It was it was a, a multi-pronged attack. He said it was infirmities, and when I would build myself up against infirmities, he said it would hit me with reproaches, and when I would... St- uh, uh, Booing myself against reproaches it would come in needs and when I'd get needs taken care of it would come in persecutions and about the time I would be stalled against persecutions distresses would come my way and I never knew where it was going to come from but what I've learned is when I'm weak then I am strong I have become a fool in boasting Look, you have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you. For in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance. Paul said, in spite of all the great things I did and signs and wonders and mighty deeds, it's not the deal. And the old man gets down to the end of his life after years of resume building. And Lee, he looks at the wounds in his hands and the prints in his side and he says, that's the way I'm like Jesus that I never wanted to be like Jesus. And it is my ultimate strength because the strength of a church or a person or a family is that strength that recognizes it is not by might, it is not by power, but it's by the Spirit of the Lord. And as Fred Rogers said, the space of ground between somebody doing pitifully, but the best they can, in all of their weakness for God, that space of ground between them and someone in desperate need is holy ground. And Paul said, I launched this thing trying to be strong and trying to be mighty in word and power and deed. And there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. It was sent to buffet me, lest I would be exalted above measure. And concerning this thing, I pleaded with God, get it out. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And God smiled and said, No, my grace is sufficient for you. And in your weakness, I will be made strong. And after all these years, 34 of them in ministry, the thing I keep coming back to after degrees and success and struggles and brokenness is in the end if God doesn't lay God's hand to it. Dave, we're done. But if the Spirit of the Lord will look upon a humble group of people who extend their corporate wounds and brokenness and say, Lord, we don't have much to give but here am I, send me. There is no limit, 2 Corinthians 12 says, there is no limit to what God can do with human weakness when that weakness is presented at the feet of of a wounded Savior. And we say, Lord, we're willing, use us. For in your weakness, God said to Paul, I am made strong. So, how do I say this in 120 seconds? 14 years ago, I had a desire to lead a progressive Christian church for people like Justin and Tim and Mary and Jody could be married and dedicate their babies. And I started, and because I had a pipeline from a big mega church I'd been at before, immediately th- uh, hundreds, if not a couple of thousand people gathered together from evangelical backgrounds and they said, we wanna follow you, but they like my strengths And I was left in a tension for 14 years between my strengths, my oratory, my speaking, but my weaknesses, that I could never make a relationship work, that I went through divorces, that there was this constant tension between the thorns in my side and the powers that I had, and I plotted through them imperfectly and brokenly. and a group of people gathered together that loved deeply. I remember I looked at people in those days like Tommy and Billy Bell and I thought, how in the world am I gonna convince this group of people that gay people have as many rights before the grace of God as we do? And I was surprised by the people who left and then I was surprised by the oldest people in my congregation who came to me and said, you're right, Stan. We've had gay neighbors, and we knew that they were children of God. I couldn't predict it the whole way through. Couldn't predict it. And we fought, we battled, and we made the inclusion statement in 2015. And that inclusion statement, God, I have relived that moment a thousand times. I've tried to figure it out if I could have done it better. Oh God, if I could have done it better, I would have done it better. Two weeks later, I had to announce my divorce because she didn't agree and I spent the last three years of trying to get my own wife to concur and to agree. Jeff, you were there through the whole process. We grew in different directions. and. After an inclusion statement, I lost nine of 12 board members who were my best friends. Two weeks later, announced a divorce, and I went into a depression. I got so depressed. It was so hard. I should have gotten on Zoloft quicker but I was embarrassed and humiliated. And then we lost Melissa and Anna and the theological progression led us to a place where we didn't know where we were and we lost that campus, sold that campus. God, I fought so hard for that campus. And then all of a sudden we had to sell it. And then we came here and 268 people came here the first week and it was so beautiful and we said let's just get here and let's stabilize and let's try to move north in Nashville to an urban setting and I kept chewing on Zoloft trying to get better and praying and meditating and somewhere between SSRIs and prayer I tried and the crowds kept getting smaller here and we couldn't figure out if it was my ineptness or Saturday night And I got offers to go other places, but I kept thinking, no, this is my home, because the problem is with the person who leaves is they take themselves with them, and I just kept wanting to do it here. And after it's all said and done, I realized I just wanna do it here, and there's this incredible leadership council and this incredible staff of people like Matt Hodges and Ron Miller and Lisa, and these incredible leaders, and I just keep coming back to, In spite of the mess, in spite of the brokenness, progressive Christianity is where the Christian church is going. There is a reformation happening and if we don't get it done, it's going to get done. But Nashville is the buckle of the Bible belt and there's something really special here. And if we can hang together, there's something special that can happen amongst us. And unity was really good to us And they let us come here for a small fee. And now our leadership council is wise enough that they realize our time at Unity is coming to an end. Because if anybody hadn't noticed, everybody's not coming on Saturday night except you really spiritual people. You people that really love Jesus. But the people who only love God and not Jesus, they don't come on. But they tell us they want to. And there's still hundreds of people who call Grace Point home. And our leadership council has seen clear, vibrantly, insightfully, they have seen clear that our time at Unity is coming to an end. And we're gonna spend the next three months, June, July, and August, celebrating our relationships, celebrating the gift that Unity's been. And we're, This is our last Saturday night at Unity. Can you say praise the Lord? But we're gonna present a calendar of Sunday night services in June, July, and August. And we're gonna have one big Sunday night service in June, one big Sunday night service in July, one big Sunday night service in August. And for all of you who say that's not enough, quit lying because all of you only come about once every three weeks anyway. We're gonna spend the last three months here at Unity and we're gonna have midrash every week and we ought to double that because it really is one of the best things we do here at Grace Point. We're gonna have midrash every Wednesday night. We're gonna meet once in June, once in July, once in August for some really big services. You know what we're gonna do? We're gonna ask all the people who are a part of us but have left to come back and just be here with us for a family reunion in June, and a family communion in July, and then a celebration in August, and then here's the good news. Tommy, we've been together a long way, here's the good news. In September, we're going to find our own spot, and by hook or crook, we're gonna get back to the time that Jesus said you ought to have church, which is Sunday morning at 10 (laughs) o'clock. That's in the King James Version if you hadn't seen it. You say, where are we going to do that? I don't know, but this staff of Matt Hodges and Lisa and Ron, this leadership council is good enough. Give us three months. We're going to find a really good spot, and we're going to start. We're going to reboot, and we're going to relaunch this incredible community called Grace Point. We're going to do that in September. And in the meantime, we're going to have Midrash every week, we're all going to get involved in life groups, we're going to go march Linda at Pride, we're going to have some really good services and we're going to try to get the people back here that need to be back here. and in. September, we're going to go with strength and gratitude for all that unity has been and the 14 years of God's grace that God has been with us and we're going to relaunch something beautiful because in our weakness, God is going to be made strong and this community and this town and this world needs to hear the progressive Christian truth that you have never been separated from God. Can you say amen? So bear with us. It's gonna be imperfect, and that's human weakness. But in the middle of that, that's where God is made strong. So here's the good news for some of you and bad news for a couple of you. Next week, no church, the next couple weeks, no church. But the second week of June, we're going to be back here on Sunday night. We're going to get this calendar out on our website, on email, on Facebook. We're going to get the calendar to you. Gary and Sandy, they're helping us with fellowships. We're going to have karaoke and potlucks and some great services in Midrash. And we're going to just have family time. And we're going to take our relationships deeper and more loving. And we're going to be good to one another. And in September, we're going to launch in God's strength. Can you say amen? and this has been a good time, and God has been with us, and God has blessed us, and the whole journey has been touched by God's grace. And I don't know what else to do except say amen. And my old Pentecostal side says, "'This feels so good, I'll take another offering.'" But we're not going to take another offer, and what we're going to do is be good to one another and love one another. Now grab hands and shoulders and necks, hug one another, and we'll see you back here in three weeks on a Sunday night. God bless you. Go. Be good to one another.